to you. Job chapter 21 this evening. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. And if you just wave at them, they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands so you can read along with us as well as hearing the Word of God for yourself. Make that Bible a gift. If you don't own a Bible, we want everyone in the world to own a Bible and to wear it out. Chapter 20, uh, Zophar has been uh, speaking, and so we come to chapter 21. Zophar, one of the so-called comforters of Job, one of his three friends. These are friends who needs enemies, you know, but uh, we'll get into a little bit more of that uh, later. But Job then answers in uh, chapter 21. And so he begins with an appeal to them. Each one of them are kind of prefacing their remarks before they kind of say what they want to say because they're, um, you know, this is a very um, kind of agitated situation at at the moment. And so uh, nobody's feeling that anybody is one another's friends at the moment. And so Job answered and he said, Listen carefully to my speech and let this be your consolation. So essentially what he's saying to them is, I know that you came from a great distance to be a comfort to me. Uh, Nothing you have said is of comfort to me. And so um, if you'll be, just be quiet and don't say another word, uh, I'll accept that as consolation or comfort from you. Bear with me that I may speak. And he's really pleading. This is a heartfelt thing where he's just asking, he's pleading with them over and over again, would somebody please just listen to what I'm saying and to the heart that is behind what it is that I'm saying. The Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what are the words revealing about a person's heart? Not just the words. These guys were just kind of theologian and wordsmiths, and all they dealt with was what was coming out of Job's mouth in the form of words and not trying to understand his heart behind what he was saying. And so, bear with me that I may speak, and after I have spoken, keep mocking. So, he has no hope that they're going to change at this particular point, neither do I, because I've read the book. Um, But they will get, uh, God will correct them uh, toward the end of the book. He said, as for me, is my complaint against man, and if it were then why should I not be impatient? And so he's basically saying, the problem that I have is not with you three supremely. The problem that I have is with God. This is between me and God. And so since God isn't speaking to me about why I'm in the condition that I'm in, then why shouldn't I be impatient? Now, everything that Job says here isn't flawless either. So God is going to correct him as well in a powerful way at the end of the book too. He said, look at me and be astonished. Put your hand over your mouth. He says, look at me. So he's skin and bones. He's got a fever because of his condition. He's covered with sores that are oozing pus. He's scraping himself with a piece of pottery and he's got himself covered with ashes, the only thing that could kind of dry out his sores and all, and he's just saying, would somebody please look at me as a human being in a condition that none of you would ever want to be in and, and deal with me as a human being? They didn't see him as a human being. He was a theological problem to them, and that's what they wanted to argue. That's why If you're ever in the hospital, typically you don't want an apologist visiting you. It doesn't mean that there aren't apologists who wouldn't be wonderful in visiting you, but it's because they've developed the people side of the calling. But apologists so often defending the faith and defending God and defending and all these kind of things, and that's what they were. And they forgot this is a human being in the middle of an unbelievable trial, and they're, they're hassling him. And so he said, would you look at me? And he said, if you just looked at me as a human being and not a theological problem, you'd put your hand over your mouth. You'd be in shock at my condition. He said, even when I remember, I'm terrified. When I remember what I looked like six months ago, 
His trial was probably about six months that he was in the middle. Even, even I, when I remember, I'm terrified, and trembling takes hold of my flesh. He says, I'm astonished at my condition. He said, why do the wicked live and become old? And so at this point, uh, Job is going to uh, lay down a, his contention that the wicked don't always suffer in this life as his three friends are contending. And he, their, their kind of proposition is very simple, that God always blesses the good and the obedient, and that he always judges and uh, meets out his, uh, you know, kind of a chastisement upon the wicked. And so that means that the good don't suffer in life. If they do suffer, it must be because they're uh, wicked. And so Job is going to point out to them that life isn't really as neat as their theories in this uh, fallen world that we live in. And so he takes the claims of Zophar, which was in chapter 20, which is basically what he proposed, and he stands uh, all of his claims uh, on, their, on their head. He says, why do the wicked live and become old? You say that the wicked die young because of their wickedness? Job said, that's not my experience. I've met plenty of wicked people who lived to a ripe old age. And conversely, many, many godly people who die young. And I, I would venture to say that's your experience as well. Probably all of us have known or do know wicked people that have lived very, very long lives. And so their contention here is, isn't based in reality, the facts of, of life around us. He says, yes, they become mighty in power. He says, I, you say that they're going to be broken down and they're going to be crushed and judged by God and they're not going to amount to anything or have anything. He says, I look around the world around me and I see plenty of wicked people in very high positions of authority and power. And of course, he's right. We see the same thing today. Their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. They have the blessing of children and they have the blessing of family, the things that people long for in life. He said, neither is the rod of God or God's judgment upon them. It doesn't, uh, he, he doesn't see God's judgment doesn't fall upon them uh, immediately. He says, I, as I see the wicked, there's wicked around all of us all of the time, wicked people. And he says, I don't see God hammer them on a daily basis. I don't see him wipe them out uh, the way that you contend that, uh, that, uh, that he will. Now, one of the things about that, and sometimes that can be kind of a frustration uh, for people in the world and say, you know, God could just, you know, sometimes you see like these dictators that uh, take over a whole country and a whole country is reduced to poverty and uh, walking for miles to find a safe place at night and there's no food and millions of people are starving to death and, and or you see the drug lords take over half the world and all this kind of, and then you see the white collar crime and all this stuff and you just look at it and say, God knows, he sees, why doesn't he judge it immediately? It would be so convenient if he would do that. But but it doesn't operate that way. God is going to one day uh, judge. And the Bible says that when we see his judgment on the other side of this life, we're going to say righteous and true are your judgments. We're going to see that his judgment is going to fit the crime, so to speak, absolutely perfectly. And nobody, there won't be a complaint about his judgment in that day. In fact, uh, the righteousness of his judgment will become a praise in heaven. I think one of the reasons people sometimes think is, why doesn't God, you know, just take out the wicked early on all of the time and then make that like the example uh, for the whole world to say, all right, you want to be wicked, then you will have a short life. You want to be wicked, then God will reduce you to the dust or this kind of… Well, how many of us would be saved today if that's what he did with the wicked? So, the Bible teaches that God gives people space to repent, he gives them room to repent, and then if they don't repent, he then holds them responsible 
for that privilege in life to repent, and, but he holds him so often responsible and a judgment on the other side of this life. And so, he said as well, their bull breeds without failure, their cows calve without miscarriage, and uh, so they prosper materially. They uh, send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance at the family gatherings. They sing to the tambourine and the harp and rejoice to the sound of the flute. These guys were contending that uh, the, the wicked get no enjoyment out of life at all. He said, you ever been to one of their parties? You ever been one of their family reunions? I mean, they got the music going, and they got the wealth to do it, and the kids, and the whole thing. Now they know how they uh, they know how to uh, to uh, in, enjoy life, and and, um, uh, and 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 experiencing that, and they spend their days in wealth, and in a moment they go down to the grave. Now we look at that and say, oh, then God just you know slams them right at the end." That's not what He's saying. Basically, he's, saying, he's talking about the, the, how he sees the wicked being blessed, and, and what he's saying is, is that I've seen the wicked, and you talk about the wicked, and if you're, they're wicked, they're going to die these long, lingering, horrible deaths. He says that, that doesn't match reality. He says, I've seen the wicked uh, get sick and die instantaneously almost. They, just, they die quick, painless deaths. It all defies their little uh, theory, and yet they say to God, this is their attitude toward God, is depart from us. These are, these are the wicked. And he says, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? So these are people that are not um, people that haven't heard the gospel yet or don't know that God exists yet. These are people who are dug in in their position. And they look at their life and they say, no, I like the life of the wicked. And, I, and, and you talk about God, you talk about a relationship with God, you talk about the blessings of God. God could not give me a better life than the one I already have. So why in the world would I care about a relationship with God and praying to God? What would I ask Him for? I have everything and more that I could want. That's the attitude of the wicked toward God. And, and, and being approached related to God. Indeed, their prosperity is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. And so Job said, this is the way that they are, but this is not the way that I am, contrary to their uh, accusations uh, toward him that, that this is, you know, who and what he was. He says, how often is the lamp of the wicked put out? And the idea is... How often does God uh, strike the wicked dead in this life? Where you just, you know, see a wicked person and they're being wicked and, and there's victims related to it and then you just see them go poof and there's a pile of ashes. <laughs> Can I send in names for suggestions? You know, as we read the news and see that well, you don't see it very often. And, and so the, here they are. God's going to judge them, and this is what they're, you know, they're saying and all. How often do you see that happen? How often does their destruction come on them? Where it's just obviously the judgment of God. The sorrows of uh, God distributes in his anger. They are like straw before the wind and like chaff that a storm carries away. And so you seldom see sinners blown away suddenly and easily like straw or chaff in a wind. Which God could easily do, but he doesn't do it for his reasons. It's a funny thing. You watch this world and you think, God, you know, if you would just take and just, just put down the clamps. And I mean, you could make everyone be afraid of disobeying you. You'd make everybody, you know, obey you for the, you know, they're going to get clobbered for it and all of that. And sometimes we think that this would be a better kind of a way. And yet, in his wisdom, and when we see it in eternity, we will realize that allowing sometimes the wickedness that he allows in this age, one day he'll put a, he will put a stop to it. But in somehow in this age, it makes people responsible for the decision that they make to choose wickedness or to choose a relationship with God. If it was all fear, 
And, and God immediately, within five seconds of doing some wicked act, God would turn us into a pile of ashes. And the word got around on that. Then what would be the motive for obeying God? I don't want to be a pile of ashes. What would happen to a love relationship with God? Obeying him out of gratitude for his grace and how good he is, or obeying him for his character in our lives. So, you know, sometimes we think of these kind of quick little law and order things that would put things right. One day in the kingdom age, a thousand year reign of Christ, he's going to rule with a rod of iron. He's going to do that. We will see the other thing, uh, but, and, the, and the blessings associated with that. But right now, he does it in his own way, and why he does everything the way that he does is as big a mystery to us sometimes as why Job was going through the things that he was going through was a mystery to him. All I know is that he's knocking out a lot of things all at the same time, and he knows what he is doing. They say God lays up one's iniquity for his children. Let him re recompense him that he may know it. So Job anticipates the, uh, an objection by them where they would say, oh yeah, well you say that God doesn't judge the wicked, but he'll, he judges their children. So he anticipates that excuse to kind of bolster their theory and... Uh, and and so Job protests related to that. Let his eyes see his destruction and let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care about his household after him when the months, uh, the number of his months is cut in half? In other words, if God pours out his judgment upon a wicked person after he's dead by judging his children, after he's dead, he has no idea what's happened. So what kind of a deterrence to wickedness would that be? And what kind of a chastisement would it be toward the dead person who knows nothing about what's happening? Again, none of it adds up in terms of, of the things that they're saying. Can anyone teach God knowledge since he judges those on high? One dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and secure. His pails are full of milk and the marrow of his bones is moist. Another man dies in the bitterness of his soul, never having eaten with pleasure. That means to the place where you can't eat another bite. Or we, have that, we have that option all the time, for the most part as Americans. But in those days, to have even one time in your life where you could just stuff yourself crazy, like on Thanksgiving, that was, that was a luxury. That was something that many people did not and do not experience their whole lifetime in the world. And they lay down alike in the dust, and the worm, uh, worms cover them. And so Job is basically saying, you cannot come to a conclusion about the goodness or the godliness or the wickedness of any man or woman on the basis of their wealth or on the basis of their health. Because people experience the same things in life no matter whether they, they, there's an overlap in terms of that. And so you, you can't judge on the basis of their wealth or their health or what they are uh, outwardly. Look, I know your thoughts and the schemes with which you would wrong me. In other words, Job says, I know you're saying all, I, you think I'm saying all of this as a defense of my own wickedness. And they, he's, he already knows what they're going to say, so he's like stepping up and, and uh, uh, anticipating it and, and batting it out of the ballpark before they even say it. But you say, uh, where is the house of the prince and where is the tent, the dwelling place of the wicked? So he, he's continuing to rebut this theory of theirs. And so they, they're basically, he, he anticipates them saying, well, show me the palace of the wicked. Show me, you know, men and women who are wicked and who are prospering. <laughs> Do you have a car? Let's take a drive. And, and so this is what he anticipates. And he says, have you not asked those who travel on the road? Ask somebody who's seen a little bit of life 
whether they've ever seen the wicked prospering. Apparently, they lived a very, very sheltered life, some kind of a village life or something. But he said, ask somebody that's seen a little bit of life, and, and, uh, and they'll tell you that the wicked do prosper. And do you not know their signs? For the wicked are reserved for the day of doom, and they shall be brought out on the day of wrath. And so, again, we have hear this recognition that one day uh, the wicked are going to be uh, judged, Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And so Job is saying, I know that judgment is going to happen one day, but it hasn't happened yet for all of them. Who condemns his way to his face? And so now he's going to talk about the wicked who are uh, very, very powerful, how they escape uh, even the condemnation of most people in this life. Who condemns the wicked man to his face? Oh, no, yes, they've got a bunch of sycophants and, and people that are afraid and they want because they want the power or they want the money or the perks or whatever goes on all over the world. Uh, the wicked very rarely get condemned to their face. Uh, and who repays him for what he has done? Yet he shall be brought to the grave, and a vigil shall be kept over his tomb. Job says, watch the funeral services of the wicked and see how well attended they are. They're fabulously attended. And the clods of the earth shall be sweet to him. Everyone shall follow him. There'll be all kinds of mourning and everything when the casket is carried or the body is carried uh, through the village as countless, uh, everyone shall follow him as countless have gone before him. And so their funerals are well attended. At death, uh, the eulogies go forth. They're well spoken of. And so Job says, how then can you comfort me with empty words since falsehood remains in your answers. In other words, I want you to just stop your faulty arguments that you're giving to me here, that the godly always prosper in this life and the wicked are always afflicted. He essentially says to them, I'm not buying it. And then Eliphaz the Temanite, he answered and he said, can a man be profitable to God, though he who is wise may be profitable to himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? You think God cares about your claims of righteousness and your righteous life? And he's saying God is absolutely disinterested in our lives or what, and about people. All he cares about is justice. Is there any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? Is it because of your fear of him that he corrects you? Uh, and, enters, and enters into judgment with you. And there's a great bit of sarcasm here. And he's saying to Job, is it for goodness that men are brought into court? Is it because of your innocence that God is judging you? So he clicks right back to protecting uh, his, his position. And, of course, the sarcasm is dripping in all of this. And then he does something that is just jaw-dropping. I mean, just when you think, okay, I've heard it all. It cannot get worse. And then it gets worse. Because in order to uh, protect their contention that the righteous always prosper in this life and that the wicked always suffer, he now it, it begins to accuse Job of great wickedness and he begins to name the sins that Job is guilty of and, and begins to name them individually to him. In other words, his position is so weak in terms of defending it, Job has so dismantled it just by, uh, not even, you know, by, just by, you know, sanctified common sense. And, and so here, uh, he, he is in such a weak position now that he feels so desperate that He's not only going to accuse Job of being a wicked man, but he's going to produce the very sins that Job is guilty of. The only problem is it's a complete fabrication. This is all in his head. So he's willing to make up lies about this man, at least speak him to his face, but there's no basis in reality in any of this in order to protect his kind of uh, theological uh, theorem. Is not your wickedness great? and your iniquity without 
uh, without end. For you have taken pledges from your brother for no reason and stripped the naked of their clothing. And so he's taken advantage of the poor in business deals. When you would, let's say, you would loan a tool to a poor man at the beginning of a day, and he would give you, as kind of an earnest, he would give you his uh, wrap or his jacket, outer coat. And so at the end of the day, he'd return the tool, and then he would give him back the jacket so he would have warmth at night. And so if something happened with the tool or he wasn't able to return it, he's saying, and here's this poor man who has, he, he's eating, he's working that day for the food that he will eat that day. And, and when he doesn't, isn't able to return whatever it is in this business deal that you've done with them, then you hold on to his garment, and, and now he doesn't have anything to keep warm with as he sleeps out in the street at night. That's quite an accusation. You have not uh, given the weary water to drink. You have, not, have withheld bread from the hungry, but the mighty man possessed the land, and an honorable man dwelt in it. So, accusing him of being a powerful man, you've got all these people traveling through the Middle East, very hot part of the world, and they're far from home. They need food. They need water. They're poor. They're on their way from one place to another place. They can't afford it. And Job, the reason that you're suffering the way that you are is you had the means to help them, but you did not help them. Utterly false. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. You have taken advantage of the very poorest and most powerless in society, which in those days were orphans and widows, and therefore, this is the reason that snares or traps are all around you. These are the sins that uh, you're guilty of and the reason that you're in the condition that you're in. And sudden fear troubles you or, uh, or darkness so that you cannot see and abundance of water covers you. Is not God in the height of heaven? And see the highest stars, how lofty they are, and you say, what does God know? Job never said, he never challenged uh, that, that God doesn't know anything or the omniscience of God, that God knows everything. What Job's contention was is that God knows everything, so why isn't he speaking to me and telling me why I'm in the trial that he's in? So now they are twisting his words and answering uh, things that he hasn't said and misrepresenting his argument. And you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds cover him so that he cannot see, and he walks above the circle of heaven. Will you keep to the old way which wicked men have trod who were cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away by a flood, and they said to God, Depart from us. What can the Almighty do to them? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. And so he accuses Job of following the path of the wicked. And then he says, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. And basically saying to Job, as a result of it, and because you are wicked, you have nothing to teach me. I don't care what you say. The rest of this argument, I'm not listening to you because you're a wicked man. I just proved it by my own lies. <laughs> You should get him in a headlock and just give him that Swedish, you know, thing right there, whatever. The righteous see it and are glad, and the innocent laughs at them, the misfortune uh, uh, to the wicked. Surely our adversaries are cut down, the righteous laugh and celebrate, and the fire consumes their remnant. And so he's basically saying, just as the righteous get excited when God judges the wicked, Job, I'm excited over the fact that God has judged you in your wickedness. This gets worse and worse and worse. And now acquaint yourself with him. And so he gives him the solution to his problem. All he needs to do is repent, get right with God, and everything will be okay. The problem is, is that he's not wrong with God. As we saw at the beginning of the book, he's in God, God's bragging on this guy and, and, and loves him. And so he's going to give him an antidote to his situation, but it doesn't match uh, the need. Now acquaint yourself with him and be at peace. 
and thereby good will come to you, receive, please, instruction from his mouth, and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you'll be built up. You will remove iniquity far from your tents, and then you will lay your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. He's accusing Job of trusting in money and gold more than trusting in God is one of the reasons that he's in the problem that he's in, and he needs to repent of that. Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. Make him the precious part of your life, and then you'll have your delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to him. He will hear you, and you will pay your vows. You will also declare a thing, and it will be established for you. So light will shine on your ways, and then they will cast you down. And when they cast you down and you say, exaltation will come, then he will save the humble person. He will even deliver one who is not innocent. See, there's hope for you, Job. Yes, he will be delivered by the purity of your hands. And so he gives them a call to repent. This is a fabulous, fabulous encouragement and exhortation to someone who is in a mess because of their sin. Uh, deliberate willful sin. But the problem is, is that they got the wrong patient. That's not Job's uh, problem. So Job replies again in chapter 23. Job answered and said, even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Again, he's longing for an audience with God. He's, he's uh, I. I, I can't get through to these three. The only hope I have of getting through to somebody to understand my situation is to talk with God. Oh, that I, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. And the idea here is that only an innocent man would ask for that. Wicked people don't say, boy, I can't wait before I stand before God. They don't want to be in front of God. They don't want to be anywhere near God. And so this is the desire of a, of a righteous man. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. He desires that God would explain all of this to him. See, the problem with Job is the big agony in Job's life right now because of his friends. Before his friends showed up, his big agony was his physical condition that he was in, which is very difficult, but also his mental and his emotional condition. He's just lost all of his children. He's lost his position. He's lost all of his wealth. And, and so as bad as that was, those were the greatest problems in his life. But when these guys start to come up and they begin to cast doubt in his mind concerning his standing before God and his relationship with God, now that becomes the great uh, concern uh, in, his, in his life, that he does not understand why God is doing this. The situation that he's in, the physical problems that he's having, all of that wasn't his greatest problem. What troubled him most was that God had allowed this to happen for no apparent cause, and if there was an apparent cause, God was not telling him. And that's the thing he's struggling with here. There the upright would reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Look, I go forward, but he's not there. I'm looking for God everywhere, backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. I'm not trying to avoid God. I'm looking everywhere uh, for God in every direction, and I can't find him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My, foot's, my foot shall... Uh, has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. So he's not going to let these guys bully him again. He knows he is innocent of these accusations of specific sins or general sins. He says, I know I'm right with God, and this is a test of some kind. And when it comes out to the other side of it and the truth be known, my, I'm going to come forth as gold, valuable. I'm innocent of these charges. He said in verse 12, 
very, very, you know, there's these gems all the way through the book of Job. He said, I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I haven't been disobedient to God's word. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And so the nourishment of God's word was more important to him spiritually in his relationship with God, his relationship with God, more important to him than his daily physical food. He's saying, I would rather starve to death physically than ever starve to death spiritually. And it's really beautiful. It's a good, I think it's a good thing to really have in our hearts as Christians. So many Sometimes we walk with the Lord for a little while and all, and we get kind of fat and sassy and His blessings and the life and the whole thing's going on and, and all of this, and then pretty soon we're, we're willing to die spiritually, starve ourselves to death from the Word of God. I started speaking to the choir here on a Sunday night while we're going through the book of Job, but you know what I'm saying. But that thing where a person says, I would rather die of physical starvation than ever give up the reading and the study and the applying of God's Word to my life. But he is unique, and who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that God does, for he performs what is appointed to me, and many such things are with him. Therefore, I'm terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I'm afraid of him, for God made my heart weak, and the Almighty terrifies me because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness, and he did not hide deep darkness from my face. And so he is... um, just saying that the power of God, the immutability of God, the fact that God does not change or change his mind, these things are of no comfort to him and kind of the silence of God and the mystery of his circumstances. Chapter 24, he continues, he said, such times are not hidden from the Almighty. Why do those who know him not see his uh, days? And so uh, Job kind of counters this idea of uh, of God's seeming indifference, uh, you know, toward him uh, and all, uh, that God isn't indifferent. He does notice what's going on in the world, and when he sees what's right, it blesses him, and when he sees what's wrong, uh, it doesn't bless him. And so he begins to talk about uh, how, uh, remember that Eliphaz had said, you know, what does God care about you? God is disinterested in man. He's disinterested in you. He's only, his only concern is injustice. And so Job is, is going to counter that here by saying, no, God is, is, uh, um, uh, he is interested in me. But he does talk about uh, when he looks at the prosperity of the wicked, there does seem to be on God's part, Job again assessing incorrectly here, an indifference of God toward the wicked, and he starts to list some of the sins of the wicked. They remove landmarks, and landmarks were basically stones that you would put at the end of your property. It was agrarian society, so the end of your property to mark your property lines. So when you moved a a landmark, it was basically to add more land to your property and take it away from your neighbor. They didn't have computers and all of these things on, you know, plots and all of it on the county and that kind of thing. So uh, this was how they measured. And so he's talking about uh, people stealing land, the wicked. They seize flocks violently and they feed on them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. Again, orphans, the most uh, or lacking a father and being powerless as a result of it. They take the widow's ox as a pledge and probably the only thing that she has to live on after the death of her husband. They push the needy off of the road. They don't even give them a place to beg. All the poor of the land are forced to hide. Indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, they go out to do their work, searching for food. The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. They gather their fodder in the field, and they glean in the vineyard of the wicked. They spend the night uh, naked without clothing. They have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the showers of the mountains and huddle upon the rock for want of shelter. So he's listing the, uh, the wickedness of the wicked, the oppression of the poor that was going on, and God seemed to be indifferent uh, to it. And the idea here in these last few verses is, you know, you had 
in those days, in that part of the Middle East, you're talking about Edom. We're not talking about Israel proper. We're talking about nations around Israel. These were governed by tribes and clans. There wasn't like a formal government as we know today. And so one tribe would get bigger and bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. And then they would look at another tribe's land or a clan over here that had gotten weaker for some reason, and they would want that property and land. And so they would go in and they would completely displace them. These people now no longer have the land that they once had because they couldn't physically defend themselves, and so they're now forced to go out where only the animals live and try and find something to live. It's just might makes right that was, that was going on, and, and yet it was happening, and why wasn't God, you know, uh, dropping the hammer on these guys? Some snatch the fatherless from the breast, and they take pledge from the poor, and so here is a uh, a young uh, uh, widow, or she's lost her husband, she's got a child, and the child is, is still so young, she's breastfeeding, and they take the child because the, the widow owes money, maybe the husband owed money or something to a creditor, they take the child as payment for the debt. They just do whatever they want, you know, to, and, and the poor just have to kind of lump it. And they cause the poor to go naked and without clothing. They take away the sheaves from the hungry. They press uh, out oil within their walls, and they tread wine presses, yet uh, suffer thirst. And so he's talking about how the poor or the, the powerful, the wicked powerful, were using the poor just to bring in these great harvests of wheat, great harvests of oil, while the poor were starving to death while they were bringing in this harvest. And there's something wrong with that. That happens all around the world, even today. We have people who have very large farms, maybe, I don't know about this country so much, but other parts of the country, and these people are kept in a, almost a, a absolute dependence upon the farm. They're put into debt to the farm store, blah, blah, blah. These people become slaves and they can never get released in order to hold them just as essentially slave labor uh, to bring in these crops to enrich one or two or three, four people at the top, and they just use these people like, um, like nothing. They're just parts of a machine that are there to be crushed and to be thrown away. This commercial Babylon, and we see the world getting more and more and more like this. There's, a, there's nothing wrong with capitalism. There's nothing wrong with hard work, ingenuity, making money, rising to the top, being successful. Nothing wrong with that. But there is a thing when within a country or within some kind of a field, a person then rises to the top in that kind of place, has power, and then begins to use that power to destroy people's lives to continue to enrich himself. And God looks at that, and he speaks about it in the book of Revelation. He is going to destroy a religious Babylon, a, a, a religious mess that exists during the Great Tribulation period, and he is going to destroy commercial Babylon. And you see so much of that happening today, and we need to be careful. If you're a boss, if you own a business and these kind of things, and you are starving people to death so that you can buy the next bigger this and the next better that and the fourth or the fifth home or the sixth boat or the this or all these kind of things, and these people don't know how to feed themselves at the end of the day legitimately, not because of mismanagement of their money, there's something wrong with that. And, and there's something wrong with a system that nurtures that. That whole system is fabulous when it's guided by God and a Judeo-Christian ethic. It's a terrible thing when it starts to view people as just something you put into the machine, you destroy them and you burn them up, and then when they can't work anymore, you throw them to the side and you grab the next batch of people. There's going to be judgment in this world for that kind of a machine, and that machine is getting bigger in the world. Uh, I'm no socialist, trust me, but this other thing can be just as grievous uh, a thing in the, in the eyes of, of God. And so the dying groan in the city and the souls of the wounded cry out. So here are the sins that the wicked do, not in the countryside, but in the city. And yet God does not charge them with uh, wrong. And so uh, here is this uh, thing where 
uh, God has, has uh, the, all of this is going on, and then God doesn't come in and clean the whole thing up in this particular age. Now, it's a little bit of an unfair accusation toward God because there is an institution of God known as government. And it's a God-given institution. God honors government. It comes from God. And a government should establish righteous laws with its authority that protects the poor from this kind of abuse and protects its people from this kind of crime and oppression. And, and so the fact that whatever situation Job was in the middle of had devolved into what it had devolved in, that was not uh, necessarily God's fault. That was the fault of the morals of the people within the nation who would not rise up and make that the standard of their government or of their region. And so God had things in place, and, and so the nation in that kind of a case is to be blamed and, and, and not God. But God doesn't put a stop uh, to it. Job is right. He doesn't always put a stop to it in this life, but one day he will. At his second coming, as I've mentioned, then he will establish what's known as the thousand-year reign of Christ, and, and he will uh, uh, enforce righteousness with a, a rod of iron, and there won't be any of this kind of thing that will be allowed for that thousand years. There are those who rebel against the light. They do not know its ways, nor abide in its paths, talking about the crimes that the wicked do in the city. The murderer rises with the light. He kills the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief. Uh, the eye of the adulterer awaits, waits for the twilight and says, no eye will see me, and he disguises himself. So the sin of adultery. And then he starts to talk about burglars and thieves. In the dark they break into houses, which they marked for themselves uh, in the daytime, and so they've cased the place. It's just the same old thing. It's <laughs> nothing new under the sun. Am I reading the Modesto B here um, or the National Enquirer? I don't know what I'm reading here. And so they, uh, they break into these houses that they've cased. They do not know the light, for the morning is the same to them as the shadow of death. In other words, it, these thieves, they avoid the morning light like they avoid death because <laughs> then uh, they'll be caught. If someone recognizes them, they are in the terrors of the shadow of death. They should be uh, swift on the face of the waters. Their portion should be cursed on the earth. In other words, these people deserve judgment, Job says, and, uh, so, uh, and so that no one would turn into the way of their vineyards. And so their land should be cursed. It should be unproductive so they have no customers, and then that will get their attention. So Job's going to kind of do God's job for him, and God's going to ask him about how good he is at that later on in the book. As drought and heat consume the snow waters, so the grave consumes those who have sinned. The womb, that's speaking of the mother of the wicked, the womb should forget him. And then that's the poetic side of it. The worm should feed sweetly on him while he's in the grave. May they have a good old meal out of the wicked. In other words, that they should uh, die and rot in the grave and be forgotten even by their mothers. He should be remembered no more. And wickedness should be broken like a tree. I mean, it should be open and decisive and undeniable. For he preys on the barren who do not uh, bear and does no good for the wicked. So God should make an example of the wicked in the kind of way that would make everybody realize you can't cross God without bearing judgment for it. And, and then, uh, the, uh, then the oppression would would back off. But God draws the mighty away with his power. He raises up, but no man is sure of life, and he gives them security, and they rely on it, yet his eyes are on their ways. In other words, though God sees all of this, the wicked don't die any earlier or any later uh, or any more horrifically than everybody else. They are exalted for a while, then they are gone, they are brought low, they are taken out of the way like all others, they dry out 
like the heads of grain. And so now, if it's not so, if this isn't true about the wicked that I have spoken, who will prove me a liar and make my speech worth nothing? So he basically says, isn't this true by your experience? Prove me wrong if I am uh, wrong. And of course, this violated the claims that they've been making for many, many chapters now. One more chapter, and then we'll uh, uh, be done until the, toward the end of the book with these three gentlemen. Then Bildad the Shuhite, he answered and he said, Dominion and fear belong to him, and he makes peace in his high places. In other words, he, he has cleared heaven of any kind of uh, active uh, rebellion. So he's talking about the greatness of God, the power of God. And, and is there any number to his armies, speaking of his angelic host, upon whom does his light not rise? Again, speaking of his power, how then can man be righteous before God, or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? For even if the moon, if even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? So, um, basically what uh, Bildad is doing here, and that, that's it. That's the final comment by the friends that are made here in, in the book of Job. And they, we let them off at the bus stop, and uh, we'll pick them up a little bit later uh, in the book. But he's just saying a bunch of things, and he's answering a bunch of questions that nobody's asking. Nobody doubted the power of God. <laughs> nobody's uh, uh, doubting the fact that, that man is... Uh, all of us are sinners. So he's answering questions nobody's asking, which isn't really helpful in any kind of uh, speaking. There is, if you take any kind of a class on uh, sermon making or sermon preparation or that kind of thing, they'll, they'll usually say something like, make sure that you answer questions that people are asking. Well, uh, Bildad never took the class. Uh, because nobody's asking the questions that he is answering. And there's hardly anything more frustrating than to sit through all of these chapters where all of them are answering questions that Job is not asking, though he's asking them over and over again. Now, let me say to you budding preachers that sometimes you do need to ask questions that people are not asking because they're questions or answer questions that people are not asking because they're questions that we should be asking, but we aren't. So it, it doesn't, uh, you know, uh, hold up all of the way. But anyway, Bildad's speech, it fails on uh, really every kind of level. Before we leave these uh, three gentlemen, I think it is good just to recap a little bit and remember what we do learn uh, from their lives. And Job never claimed to be sinless. He never claimed to be perfect. All his only contention was is that I am not suffering this because of any known deliberate willful sin or wickedness in my life or secret sin or hypocrisy in my life. He knew that he wasn't guilty of any of that. And, and so um, they just, uh, uh, they wouldn't believe that and, and uh, you know, and, and continued to accuse him of, of his uh, wickedness. I think some of the lessons in dealing with those who are suffering are, are valuable uh, to look at. And a couple we looked at earlier at the beginning of the book, but I think they bear uh, repeating. You have these three men who somehow feel they have to have an explanation for everything in life and every circumstance for the people that they run into, and they feel compelled to have an answer for God. When they think that a circumstance reflects badly upon God, they feel like they have to have an answer for that, or somehow God can't have an answer for himself, and so they've got to protect God's reputation. God does not need me to protect his reputation. God's reputation was not in any danger in the life of Job. Because God knew everything that was going on in heaven. He knew how the whole thing was going to end. He knew the great lesson that he was driving home, not only in human history, but angelic history, concerning the heart of men toward a love relationship with God, that yes, men and women will follow me and obey me for me and for the relationship and not just for my blessings, 
And so these men feel like they have to defend God, and, and we do not have to defend God. And if we end up thinking that we have to defend God and come up with all these theories, then very, very often we're going to end up misrepresenting Him and saying that it's this or that related to the situation. It may be nothing of the sort. I think that when dealing with uh, people in deep trial, as the old saying goes, if you can't improve upon silence, don't try. There's no need to explain everything. Just to be there and to be supportive uh, of, of the person. With each of these three friends of Job, when, uh, again, in this defense of Job's reputation, uh, that, there's, that can be a weakness in the kind of person who has a very, very high view of God and of His Word, which is wonderful in and of itself, but they lack God's love or compassion uh, for people. And so there is that kind of person who has a magnificent, wonderful awe of God, but they lack at a moment in time, maybe in their Christian life, a deep concern and love for people. And, and that kind of person is not going to be much help in this kind of situation. And thankfully, the Lord develops that within our lives if we're willing to let Him uh, do that. They, they didn't listen very well. And uh, you know, what's the old saying? God has given us two ears and one mouth because we need, we're supposed to listen twice as much as speak. These guys didn't understand that or they hadn't heard that um, because anytime Job was talking, they were not carefully listening to what he was saying. All they were thinking about was what they were going to say next. That's a fairly frustrating conversation when you're uh, healthy, wealthy, and wise and you're talking with someone, and you realize this person is not listening to me. All they care about is what they're going to say next. But you put yourself in a situation where you are desperately in need of comfort and encouragement, and you put that kind of a person in that place where they're not listening to me, they're not taking me seriously, then that's a very, very miserable thing. They assumed that they knew the cause of Job's problems when they didn't. They never, ever, not once, put themselves in Job's shoes. Not one single time did they stop and think, what would I be thinking or feeling if I was in this circumstance in the midst of this kind of loss and upheaval? They never did it, not one single time. And then they, as a result of that, they completely ignored his mental anguish and his emotional pain. They never, ever expressed any comfort or sympathy to Job, not one time. Imagine seeing this man in front of you, and he is a so-called friend. They never express sympathy or comfort to Job one time. That's how quickly they got pulled off into this theological argument, and we have to protect God's reputation kind of thing. They, and they left all of that. It's almost unbelievable, except we know that this is in the Bible for our own uh, encouragement and our own instruction because obviously we're capable of it also. You know what's really interesting? They never prayed for him, not one time. Not one time. Not one time. These know-it-alls about God did not pray for a man in that condition, not one time. That's a very, very glaring problem in their lives. And the very worst thing that they did was they destroyed Job's confidence in God and his confidence in his relationship with God the very time Job needed his relationship with God like he'd never needed it before. And they cast doubt in his mind about the goodness of God and the favor of God and whether God was for him, whether God was worthy of his trust, these kind of things. They, they took away when he lost everything else and all he had was his relationship with God. They tried to take that remaining thing from him with their doubts. They were unsuccessful, again, because God did not allow them to be successful there 
And again, we look and say, where is God in this whole big picture? God is very present. He leaves his fingerprints, and some of the biggest fingerprints he leaves on Job's life during this chapter in his life is that Job's faith did not fail because he was in the grip of God. It was a grace of God in his life, but he wouldn't see it until later. And so often we look at a season in our life and we say, where were you? There was nothing. There was silence. You were inactive. I couldn't recognize anything. And then we get to see the end of it in our lives and we look back and we go, Lord, forgive me. Now I see your fingerprints all over the place and I'm undone at the accusations that I brought against you. And so they would have just been better off showing up from their villages, seeing Job there and saying, Job, I am so sorry for what you are in the middle of, but hold on to God. Hold on to God in this. And when you look around, we've got your back. We're going to be here for you. God's got you in his grip. He's worthy of your trust. Let's see what he's up to here. And then nothing. And they would have been far greater comfort in just saying those simple things, encouraging him in the goodness and the grace and the power and the wisdom of God, and then encouraging them, him in their own commitment to him as their friend. And yet, they didn't go to any of those kind of places because of their whole theology. And I think, as we talked about, Job's going to spend one more few chapters rebutting what they've said, but they disappear in terms of us reading what they say. And the reason that these chapters are so important, even to the point where they kind of get tedious, and I don't know how many of you want to strangle me at this point, I'm saying, does he have to explain every verse related to this? Can't we just race through it? Trust me, for me, we have raced through this. But it gives us, it helps us, just average Joe Christians, like all of us are, to look and say, oh boy, if I ever got put in the middle of a situation like that to comfort somebody in Job's place, I don't think I know enough theology. I don't think I know uh, enough, uh, you know, theological arguments or philosophical arguments or the answers to this and the answers to that. <laughs> if you knew all of that, you might be more trouble. Anybody who had a love for God, has a love for God, and had a love for Job, any Joe Blow, blue collar, whatever, could have shown up and said, God loves you, let's hold on to that. We love you, we're here with you. Anybody could have done that and been a far greater comfort than them. Why include all of those chapters? To encourage us in terms of what is true encouragement in that situation, and that we have it to give. All we need to do is just to point people to God and then have a deep concern for them and a commitment to them in the middle of the trial that they're in, and then we are giving them what they need in the midst of it and the most that we can offer, and then God will be faithful to do the rest. Now, these three gentlemen... Um, I'm convinced they'll be in heaven. And so if you're thinking, oh, we're going to, I'm, when I get into heaven, I'm going to go find them, their names will be changed <laughs> to protect the innocent. They're going to be in the witness protection program up there. <laughs> Just like all of the rest of us. I'm so glad so many of my conversations are not in the book and my learning curve and so much further to go. And so the grace of God will cover all of it one day, but very, very valuable lessons in ministering to those who are uh, suffering and in need. If you sit here the, uh, this evening and you're not yet a Christian, you need to, here's how you become a Christian, by putting your faith or your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It, it's, it, it is easier than standing up out of the chair that you're sitting in right now. It's easier, it will be easier for you to be saved and forgiven tonight and to have the confidence of heaven after this life is over 
than to get up out of that seat and walk to your car in just a minute. God has made salvation a free gift to us, and he wants to begin that personal relationship with you this evening, and there are going to be pastors and others up in front after the service, and we'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship tonight. I never want to ever go through a Bible study morning and evening. I can forget but ever have anyone come into a church and not know, number one, that you need to be saved and forgiven of your sin. Sin is a big deal. God can't overlook it. And that you can be saved and that God will save you and forgive you tonight and lead you into the life that he has planned for you. And he'll love to do it. If you need prayer for anything tonight, these same men and women would love to pray with you and pray for you. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Father, thank you for all of the lessons in your word. And so many of the lessons we learn as we see something done perfectly, and that, that is the lesson of our Savior, Lord. And we love to learn that way. Lord, you know that so often we learn lessons that go the deepest place in our life, when we see something done poorly and badly and long to never be guilty of what we've just seen and what we've just heard. So we thank you, Lord, for the record of these three men. We thank you that you've put it in your book. We acknowledge our capacity to go off message and horribly misrepresent you in all kinds of situations in life. And we pray, Lord, that as you put us in the middle of these kind of circumstances to be a comfort to men and women who are in places like Job is in, that you would remind us of the lessons of these three. And Lord, just give us a, a word to speak to them of encouragement in their relationship with you and then to become a loyal friend in the midst of all that they are in the middle of. Thank you, Lord, for the simplicity of your instruction, the power of it. And we just trust you now as we prepare to leave this place that what has been put in our hearts in these last weeks as we have studied this back and forth, Lord, that you will bring the lessons of it to our remembrance as we have need. We long to be helpful, Lord, in this world, a help to you and your purposes and a help to our fellow man. And we've ask these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen.